Hello, and welcome to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. I am Jamie Mize. Today is the fifth and final episode of our inaugural season, Histories, Mysteries, and True Crimes. As the title suggests, this season, we explored historic mysteries and true crime stories from the past. Our fifth and final episode examines the mysterious circumstances around the assassination of Soviet party boss Sergei Kirov in 1934. On the afternoon of Saturday, December 1st, 1934, Leonid Nikolaev arrived at the Smolny Institute where Sergei Kirov worked. Once there, he made his way to the third floor and waited in a hallway until Kirov stepped into the corridor. Kirov turned a corner and passed Nikolaev, who then drew his revolver and shot Kirov in the back of the neck. To learn more about this assassination and why such a seemingly straightforward event could be considered mysterious, I spoke with Dr. Anthony Johnson. You may remember Dr. Johnson from our special current event episode on Ukraine and Russia. Dr. Johnson is an assistant professor of modern history at UNCP. All right, Dr. Johnson, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for your willingness to talk to me, not just once, but twice in one season. It it is indeed an honor. You you might not. I'm surprised you wanted to talk to me again after the first time. (laughs) I've received a lot of compliments about Oh, really? Yes, yes. I'm sure it's all due to uh, to very, very clever editing on your I don't know. I think Dr. Johnson is is famous, and we're going to add to that fame today. Infamous, infamous. Uh, We're going to add to that today um, because you're going to talk to us about Sergei Kirov. Did I do it right? Yeah, Sergei Kirov. Very good. So um, before we get into his death, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just briefly telling everyone who who is he? Uh, Kirov. Or his relative youth could actually qualify as one of the old Bolsheviks. He, you know, he's from a relatively small town. His father abandons the family when he's five. His mother passes away not too long thereafter from tuberculosis. He's raised temporarily by his grandmother until the grandmother realizes that between the grandmother, Kirov, and his two sisters, she can't feed everybody. So she sends him off to an orphanage nearby, and he would, you know, he was at the orphanage and would still be able to come by and visit his grandmother and sisters. But he's he's incredibly bright. He goes to school courtesy of the orphanage. The people at the school take up a collection to send him for slightly more advanced education, and he's his plan is ultimately to get to a to a university and study. But he, it's like every step he takes, he ends up falling in with radicals. And eventually he will fall in, particularly after the revolution of 1905, more and more with the Bolsheviks. He, he ends up in the Caucasus. He ends up in Georgia as an editor for a newspaper, publishing things that tend to raise the suspicions of the Russian government. He gets arrested a few times. He, he ultimately takes part in revolutionary demonstrations. He's got an underground publishing house for a while in Tomsk. And, uh, he's. That's in Siberia. He, yeah. That's, I've, I've spent many a day there, but he, he is, 
like I said, he tends to fall into this category of the old Bolsheviks. Now, during the Civil War, he gains more and more of a name for himself and maybe even a little bit of infamy by standing up to Stalin on occasion when he felt that Stalin wasn't making the right kinds of decisions. Stalin at the time was Commissar for Nationalities and you know, being headquartered in Georgia in you know, the region of the Caucasus, you've got a, you know, a plethora of ethnic, national, cultural, social identities all milling about there. And Stalin was more of a, you, you ever hear the phrase, and it's more Catholic than the Pope, somebody who kind of adopts Catholicism and then goes all in on this philosophy. Stalin kind of adopted great Russian nationalism and then becomes like the poster child for great Russian nationalism, even though he's not even great Russian. He's Georgian by birth. And so Kirov kind of makes a name for himself standing up to people like Joseph Stalin. And eventually he and Stalin become friends. During the, during the power struggles of the 1920s between uh, Trotsky, uh, Leon Trotsky, Lev Kamenev, Grigory Zinoviev, Nikolai Bukharin, and Joseph Stalin, uh, Stalin relies on people like Kirov. Kirov's kind of a, a bit of a moderating force, really, for Joseph Stalin. And eventually, they'll become very good friends, even though there's some, some debate on this, right? Uh, Kirov would vacation during the summers with Stalin's family. And the story, the, again, this, yet there's a whole lot of rumor, a whole lot of conjecture around this entire situation where people, is, people would say, well, yeah, Kirov would vacation with Stalin, but he hated doing it. He couldn't stand doing this. And on the other side, people like, no, 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 Joseph Stalin actually really loved Kirov. And this was, you know, this was his way of relaxing, of having people close to him, people he could trust, going on vacation with him. See, I mean, the kind of debates about you know, what happened to Kirov will be uh, tinged with this, you know, who's really responsible for Kirov's death. In the course of the power struggle, Zinoviev and Kamenev will be ousted. These guys headed up the Leningrad for Zinoviev and Moscow for Kamenev, the Leningrad and Moscow party offices. Well, when Zinoviev is ousted from Leningrad, Stalin taps Kirov to head up the Leningrad party organization and clear out all of the Zinovievites. And that's where we find Kirov in 1934. He is the, he is the Leningrad party boss. He is a very, very popular, uh, Leningrad party boss. The you know, stories have it of him walking, uh, along the street between his flat and the Leningrad party offices that were at the Smolny Institute. And like playing jump rope and hopscotch with kids along the way as he's you know walking back and forth from his home to his office. Stalin is not necessarily that same kind of personality trait, right? He's he's not the kindest, cuddliest dictator in the world. But this is this is kind of where we find things on December third on the first of December nineteen thirty-four, is that Kirov is not only very popular in Leningrad, he's also very popular within the party. He he is tapped to give a lot of speeches at party congresses. 
And when the 17th Party Congress rolls around, and it's it's euphemistically called the Congress of Victors, this uh, this 17th Party Congress, I think it's in February of 1934, but I could be mistaken. They have an election to see who's going to be uh, a part of the Politburo and who's going to be a part of the Central Committee. And the way this is done is you're given a list of candidates and you cross off the ones that you don't want. And the story goes that they seized all of the ballots because Kirov was only crossed off of two ballots. And Stalin was crossed off of like 150 ballots. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it doesn't generally do well to be more popular than the dictator. So this is kind of where we are. He's, he's one of the old Bolsheviks. He's been around for a while. He's ostensibly very, very close to Stalin. And... He's more popular, both within the party and among the general public. Okay, so um, a lot of what you just said suggests then why there is debate and a lot of mystery around his assassination, which on the face of it looks like it should be fairly straightforward, right? Because. We it actually really know the person who shot him, correct? That's right. Leonid Nikolaev was okay. the gunman. He was tackled by Kirov's bodyguard on the third floor at the Smolny Institute, just down the hall from Kirov's office. Revolver supposedly in hand. Yeah, so we ostensibly, we know precisely what happened. The story so why is, is there a mystery then? <laughs> well, there are questions. Uh for example, how does a man get onto the third floor of the Smolny Institute, of the Bolshevik Party headquarters, with a revolver? When he's got to clear guards below, he's got to clear guards downstairs. There are guards on every floor, and there are supposed to, and there are supposed to be guards basically like every other door on the third floor, which is where the main party bosses were going to have their offices, of course. He was picked up before by NKVD. He was arrested once for carrying a revolver, and he produced he produced documentation. Here's my party card. Here's where I've got a permit to carry a weapon, and they they released him, even though he had made these kinds of threats against people like uh, Sergei Kirov and Joseph Stalin before. Why? So why? You know, maybe I should. I hate to interrupt, but why no, should? No, no. What What is the reasoning? I mean, I assume that he was interrogated. Yeah, the story, the story goes that Kirov was sleeping with Nikolaev's wife. Nikolaev's wife worked at the Smolny Institute. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, pardon me, geez, pardon me for putting it quite this way. Um, Nikolaev's wife was apparently very plain. Oh, okay. And, yeah, pardon me for putting it this way. I mean, you have to understand, Sergei Kirov is the party boss of Leningrad. He, he was notorious for having affairs, but with like these glamorous actresses and ballerinas and things like that, that's, you know, and women like that, that's. And so the question is, yes, he's so mad because he thinks that his wife is having an affair with Kirov. And at the time, people are like, yeah, she's really not Kirov's type. Well, and I think, too, there were rumors that came out our stories that came out after the fact, right? That he had said things to people about his desire to kill yep. leading party officials. And so, mm -hmm. I mean, that doesn't explain. You know. That doesn't explain why the NKVD, which was the secret yeah. police for the Soviet regime, would pick Nikolaev up 
find him, not only release him, but give him his weapon back. Right. Like, huh. So, so then what, what, what are the explanations for this? Because if I'm correct, this assassination kicks off the event known as the great purge. Is that correct? Yes. And that's why it's become so important because it's not only like an indictment on Stalinism. It can be for a lot of people an indictment of the, the longer period in time of Russian history of the Soviet Union, or you could even push it up to today to think about how uh, Vladimir Putin has handled, euphemistically speaking, right, some of these people who challenge his authority. And so, yeah, it becomes very, very important. There are, you know, to date, there are basically three ways of looking at this entire situation, that Leonid Nikolaev was a long gunman, that he somehow gained access to the Smolny Institute with his revolver, that he made it to the third floor undetected, and on a day when Kirov wasn't even supposed to be at Smolny, mm. Kirov just happened to show up that day. Bad that luck. While Kirov is supposed to have a bodyguard by him 24-7, his bodyguard was talking to a friend down the hall and wasn't right next to Kirov, and that allowed Kirov to, to shoot him. And apparently Kirov tried to shoot himself and flinched and missed and fired a bullet up into the ceiling at the Smolny Institute. The other theory is that for some reason or other, the NKVD wanted Kirov out of the way. Now, Kirov had interfered with Stalin transferring some NKVD men to Leningrad before. Kirov, I mean, he's the party boss. He, you know, he exercises a tremendous amount of authority in Leningrad. And so maybe Hypothetically, theoretically, the NKVD wanted him out of the way. Not the overall guy in command for the NKVD in Leningrad, but the number two in command. I tried to remember names. I think the number two in command was Zafirozhets, and I cannot even remember his first name. But yeah, something, yeah, there's, there's the other theory. The second theory is that the NKVD wanted him out of the way. The third theory is that Stalin wanted him out of the way. That the NKVD had a hand in this. Absolutely. But the NKVD, you know, members of the NKVD don't go for a walk without consulting Stalin. And so they wouldn't have done this of their own free will. They did this at somebody else's urging. And the only person, the only logical person that they would take an order from would be Joseph Stalin. And that Stalin removed Kirov for a few reasons, one being that he was incredibly popular and that people had even approached him as a possible replacement for Stalin at some point as general secretary of the Communist Party. Uh, Kirov ostensibly was the number three in command in the Soviet Union. Stalin was general secretary, sometimes referred to as the first secretary. Well, Kirov was third secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and he's very popular. So you get a rival out of the way, but you also have the opportunity to launch into a campaign for finding wreckers, saboteurs, assassins, and enemies of the people in the course of this investigation, which is intriguing because you've said yourself you've done a little background reading on this entire situation, and you know probably from this background reading that while he was in NKVD custody the day after Kirov's assassination, Kirov's bodyguard, Borisov, is going to be questioned 
by the NKVD. They're taking him by truck to be questioned. And Buddy saw falls off the back of the truck. Falls and off dies. the back of a turnip truck and dies. And dies. Yep. It's very convenient. You've got people who are associated with Leonid Nikolaev and are executed. There, there's the story, and I cannot remember the woman's name, but the woman lives in Siberia somewhere. Nikolaev had been in Siberia, knew that woman's aunt, was visiting the aunt. The woman went to see the aunt as Nikolaev was leaving. It's like, oh, okay, hey, sure, good to meet you. Bye, take care. She gets hauled in for questioning and ultimately gets executed for being associated with this. Good grief. As was very unusual for any kind of questioning. Nikolaev is interrogated directly by Stalin. Do you think that's true, or is that just what they said? I think that's true. Stalin Stalin went to Leningrad to with other members of the party to retrieve the body of Sergei Kirov to take him back to Moscow for... He was a pallbearer, is that correct? Yeah. Wasn't he one of the ones that carried the casket? Yep. Okay. All right, so he goes to Leningrad. I'm sorry I interrupted you again. Go for it. Yeah, he, he interrogates Nikolaev. There are stories that he, like, actively placed the weapon in Nikolaev's hand, unloaded, of course, right? But there's story rumors and innuendos. And Stalin basically tells the NKVD, he's like, you're going to lead this investigation. It's a bunch of Zinoviavites who have done this. Bring them in. And so he he basically makes the the people who were once politically allied against him, he's like, it's their fault. Bring them in. And it kickstarts like a wave of mass arrests that starts in Leningrad and then spreads throughout Russia. And like I said, it, it ends up you know drawing this one woman out in Siberia into police custody and ultimately getting killed. It's a, a Zinovia Did I say? Yeah, Grigory Zinoviev. Like I said, uh, like I said earlier, Grigory Zinoviev was the head of the Leningrad Party organization, and he was one of the four men who stood to succeed Lenin, along with well, I guess five if we if we count Joseph Stalin, right. uh, Leon Trotsky, Lev Kamenev, uh, Grigory Zinoviev. Nikolai Bukharin, and Joseph Stalin. And yet Zinoviev and Kamenev kind of stood, a, you know, do we want to get into the power struggle of the 1920s briefly? Why the supporters of this particular person instead of like Trotskyites or something? Uh, because Trotsky, by this point, had already been expelled from the country. He's well, gone, gone. He's in Mexico living it up with Frida Kahlo and De, uh, Diego Rivera. Okay, so maybe I misunderstood the Zinovia. The Zinovievites. Yeah. Well, who's the per- who's the person? Grigory Zinoviev is still in the country. He, he never, is still in the country, so he's still alive. He's still he in the never, country. Yeah, he never rises to the heights that he was once in in the nineteen okay. twenties. All right, that was uh, my that was my bad. I was confused. I thought but he he's still around. Gone. He's not. He okay. hasn't been yet. But this is one of the things: the Kirov assassination. This gets leveled against Grigory Zinoviev and the people who were allied with him during the power struggle in the 1920s. And eventually Zinoviev will be executed after a show trial. Sure. I say sure. Like, of course, course, right? It makes complete sense. Yeah. Oh, geez. Um, Sounds like you're ready to dominate the world too. Yes. Kill him. Okay. Then 
it seems like on based on the the telling and the kind of different aspects that we've discussed that it would be completely within the realm of possibilities that the NKVD at the behest of Stalin find this individual and set things up in such a way that this assassination can play out the way that it did. And that's that's what uh Richard Pipe. Oh, not Richard Pipes. I'm sorry. Uh, Robert Conquest. Robert Conquest wrote a book called The Great Terror. And, and naturally, you, you know, his, his mentality is you can't understand the coming of the Stalinist purges without understanding what happened to Sergei Kirov. And Conquest wrote this book in like 1968. It subsequently went through a, a reassessment in 1991. And I think they published it again on the 50th anniversary about four years ago. But, uh, but Conquest says Stalin did this. Stalin was absolutely behind the assassination of Sergei Kirov. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. He wanted to eviscerate the old guard of the Bolshevik party. And the best way he could do this was by and putting terror in the hearts of the people by saying that there are assassins and enemies of the people all over. Uh-huh. And we've got to root them out. Okay. And it starts on the 1st of December, 1934, with Kirov's assassination. His evidence is entirely circumstantial. Oh, wow. It is wow. nevertheless quite compelling, in my, in my opinion, but it is entirely circumstantial. Uh, in 1961, I want to say, but my mind is, is not as crystal clear as it once was back in the day, after he has succeeded Joseph Stalin, Nikita Sergeyevich Khrushchev orders an official investigation into what happened. And he tells people, we will not disclose what has happened officially in this investigation until 15 years after it is concluded. But you have to understand Khrushchev is also hip deep in de-Stalinizing the Soviet yes. Union, talking about what a mean, dirty, evil yes. guy yes. Stalin was. And so, so naturally everybody goes, ah, okay, yep, they're going to find that Stalin did it. And they did. And when they go to consult the evidence cited in this official investigation, a lot of the paperwork is missing. And it's like, huh. Was this was this fabricated? You know, did, was there really evidence that was actually cited? And then somebody got some sticky fingers down the road and decided to lift it out of the Soviet archive. What happened? Again, still highly circumstantial. Revisionist, oh, wow. revisionist historians are like, you you can't lay this blame. Uh, the fate of okay. Joseph Stalin. Well, all right. Do we know? I mean, it would seem that Kirov had no idea that he needed to be in fear of his life if he. But then, why does he have a bodyguard with him? Well, okay. Yeah, he's supposed. Do we to have, have any sense? Do we have any sense of how he's feeling in the days leading up to this? Did he talk to anybody about concerns that he had? He he's this journalist. He he leaves a lot of information behind, but he doesn't leave a tremendous amount of personal information behind. And that's that's one of the sticky, sticky points for me is, I mean, I've been trying to get my way through Amy Knight's book, you know, Who Killed Kirov? But the problem is there always there's always something else where it's like, oh, OK, yeah, let's look at Conquest because I'm going to have to talk a little bit about him. Oh, let's look at Roy Medvedev. And I don't necessarily have the sense that he expected a problem from within. 
but this is this is the problem with Soviet sources. The the general consensus after Kirov is assassinated is that the man was essentially a saint, right? He's the guy walking down the sidewalk, going to work, playing hopscotch and jump rope with the kiddies, right? If that's the case, why does he need a bodyguard, particularly if he doesn't expect problems from within? Why does he need a bodyguard if he's that popular? But yeah, the the kind of mytho it's it's very, very difficult to tease apart the mythology surrounding Sergei Kirov and the reality of the situation as he experienced it in the lead up to that assassination. Well, and I mean, people could be popular politicians and not necessarily be the people that you want to invite over for dinner. Yeah. Um, Because, I mean, my understanding is that he got to the got to this position as many of these figures did because he was incredibly brutal in enacting, you know, party policy and purging Mm -hmm. different areas at different times when it was thought that that was what needed to happen. Well, I mean, we had this, we had just the same conversation in class yesterday or maybe last Thursday, I think when Khrushchev launched this campaign of de-Stalinization. People are like, yes, all right, yeah, that's the right thing to do. I'm like, well, you know, there can be other reasons for this. What do you mean? So, well, yeah, Stalin did a whole lot of nasty stuff, but so did Khrushchev. Yeah. But if we focus everybody on what Stalin did, people tend to forget what Khrushchev did. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. That's the reminder, right, to not just take everything at face value. Don't take it at face value. That's what history teaches us. Absolutely. So, and it would stand to to reason if if you're Stalin and you've created a situation where you've basically rid yourself of who you perceive to be your chief rival at the moment, and you've done it in such you've done this in such a way that you've actually been able to kind of kick off and orchestrate a campaign that allows you to purge all of your rivals and anybody that might have any sort of threat whatsoever. It would stand to reason that the kind of propaganda machine that you're utilizing to spread this fear, you can also utilize to maybe not remake, but paint this person's image in such a way that, you know, the, the loss seems even greater, you know? Oh, yes. And it's the other thing, and I don't think I've mentioned it yet, but, uh, and I, and I'd love to find out precisely when Stalin signed these documents just to get an idea, but it's like the very day that Kirov is assassinated, Stalin signs two orders depriving people of committing uh, you know, depriving people who committed crimes against the state to legal representation and another law that says if they're found guilty, they're to be taken out and executed immediately. It's like the very day Kirov is assassinated, Stalin signs these two laws. And it's like, I wonder if he signed this before or, or right. after, just, just for my curiosity, right? <laughs> so you may not want to answer this question, but no. what, do you, what, <laughs> what do you think? Because I think that there's there's an element that people kind of always want a conspiracy. They really, you do. know, the idea that one part, it could just be, you know, like the fact that Oswald just shot Kennedy and there was no mm-hmm. greater 
person or force yeah. behind that is, I, you know. I always have this conversation with my classes because like like with somebody like a JFK, right? Yeah. We can't wrap our brains around the fact that somebody would just shoot a JFK. Right. There's got to be something else to this. Sure. And by God, we're going to find it out, right? And so that's that kind of undergirds a lot of conspiracy theory thinking mm-hmm. of there, there's got to be something more to this. Somebody like a JFK doesn't just get shot. It's a, that just doesn't happen. Right. There's got to be something deeper, something far more nefarious to this. Sure. Now the question becomes, how much of that exists in the Kirov assassination? And how much of that is kind of manufactured by the way things played out? Because Stalin himself is the one who's like, there's a conspiracy behind this. Right. The Zinovievites have carried this out. We're going to put Kamenev and Zinoviev on trial. And Kamenev and Zinoviev always kind of go together like peas and carrots and Stalin and Stalinist events and in the history of the Soviet Union right up until they die. Uh, they're always mentioned in the same breath. But yeah, that's, I mean, part of that is actually fed. Part of that conspiracy theory mentality is fed by Stalin himself and how events play out after Kirov's assassination. And now kind of looking back and reflecting on it, was Stalin so willing to find the conspiracy among the Zinovievites because he knew that he himself had orchestrated Mm. the Kirov assassination? Mm. So is he so, you know, so loudly proclaiming their guilt to try and distract others from his? Right. I mean, admittedly, Comparing Kirov, somebody like Kirov to to JFK was maybe not the best comparison, but I guess I was I was thinking comparison we've made and we've run with it. Yes, indeed. I was thinking more about you know just how unsatisfying people find stories of just lone gunmen doing things for reasons that yes, and like I said, it's the truth. Don't have bigger bigger explanations, but I guess though another thought. You see how I evaded your question, though. Yes, and I'm I'm going to do it. Another thought. Another. I've already kind of answered it by telling (laughs) you that that conquest's argument, though circumstantial, is highly compelling. Highly compelling, indeed. Well, I mean, another thought too is, I mean, even if Stalin didn't orchestrate the assassination. The fact that he took advantage of it and was he like, certainly All right, benefited from it. Yeah, I'm going to use did. this and spin this as some sort of like maybe he did interrogate this poor he, man he, and decided he, he, he in fact talking. was just crazy. But he's like, ah, yeah. oh, I have an opportunity here. I yeah, mean, we always don't... we always ask ourselves, qui bono, right? Who benefits from Kirov's assassination? Yes, indeed. And then we kind of follow the breadcrumbs to that. Yes. And Stalin is far and away the guy who benefits most from Kirov's assassination. But so I am I'm asking and I, I think the answer is yes. But it is true then that even if he wasn't behind it, he still could have if he's doing the interrogation, he still could have said, aha, I have a tremendous opportunity here to utilize oh, this yes. event in my favor. Oh, yes. But you're saying that conquest says that and it's very compelling argument. Yes. Okay. That all right. That's the 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 soft plug for Conquest's book, right? Yes, it not is. That I, not that I get any money off of it, but it, it is. 
That's one of the first proper, like, deep dive books that I ever had the opportunity to read in Russian history. Oh. Was Conquest's Great Terror. Is that what converted you? May very well have been. Uh, I was already thinking about graduate school, and uh, we were studying the Great Terror in the spring of 2000 in Bruce DeHart's Soviet Russia class. And I said, yeah, I'm kind of curious. I'd like to read a little bit more. He just reaches on his shelf and hands me this book. He's like, here, you might be interested in this. I was like, huh. Yeah, by the end of that semester, I'm like, yep, Russian history. So it's all his fault. Yeah, I blame him, even though he did his best to talk me out. Even when he tried so hard to convince you not to do it. It's like, don't do it. This is is a horrible idea. (laughs) Oh, goodness. If he he wanted to stand up for himself. (laughs) Well, is there anything else that we need to know about Sergei Kirov and his assassination before we leave today? I don't know. It's suffice it to say it's just still so muddled, the Kirov assassination. I don't know if we will ever agree. If historians, the lay public, just, you know, the curious people who've studied this situation, I don't know if anybody will ever agree on what actually happened on the third floor of the Smolny Institute on the 1st of December, 1934. But we know that it marked the beginning of the terror that reached that fever pitch in 1937 and 1938. I think it was Simon Montefiore who said, yeah, whether or not Stalin actually killed Kirov, he certainly exploited the murder to destroy the people who opposed him or something like that. I can't quote it exactly, but yeah, it's, yeah, we'll, we'll never agree on it. I don't think, but it certainly is intriguing getting in there and kind of digging around in the information to try and find out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, one of another one of history's mysteries then. Oh, yes. Very good. Well, Dr. Johnson, thank you so much. Oh, hey, it's absolutely a pleasure on my end. I guarantee you. All right. Well, we will talk to you soon. All right. Sounds good. Cheers. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Not Just Great Men, a history podcast brought to you by the History Department at the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. Please stay tuned as our upcoming season entitled History's Lessons will drop before the end of the year. The second season is inspired by our students and the things they said they wanted to know more about after taking our courses. Topics will address a wide temporal and geographical range and include discussions on the Aztecs, Marco Polo, Rasputin, Reconstruction, and much more. We hope you will join us.